The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Lectures on the Politics of God and the Politics of Man Lecture 5 The Politics of God and the Politics of Man Part 3 I said at the beginning of Lecture 3 that in relation to the Christian religion, the term politics can be used in two senses, in a general sense and in a more specific sense, and that Christianity is inevitably political in both these senses. In what has been said previously, I have been referring to politics as a general, that's to say all-embracing, category for understanding human life. We come now to the second sense in which I am using the term politics. Politics in the specific sense refers to a particular form of social action in which men seek to establish and control the machinery of state as a means of ruling and influencing society. We have seen that in the politics of man the state becomes the object of man's apostate desire to control his own life independently of God. The state is made to function as an unlimited authority that replaces God and his providential government of the world. In other words, man idolises the state. Without God, man seeks to control his own destiny. The means he uses to do this is the state. The state itself is not an illegitimate institution. It is a God-ordained institution with a specific and limited role in society. But under the apostate political order of man, it takes on a greater meaning. That is to say, its role is expanded beyond its God-given function as a servant of God in the administration of public justice, and it is made to function as a central institution by means of which man establishes his own kingdom independently of God. It becomes, as we have already seen, an idol, a God, to which men look for their salvation. The historical role of civil power, says Ethelbert Stauffer, and I quote, is changed into its opposite. From being a bulwark against Antichrist, it becomes the very fortress of Antichrist himself. Unquote. This is not a new development in human history. It happened repeatedly in the ancient world and, as we have already seen, was manifested supremely in the cult of the Roman Emperor, the biblical Antichrist. What is new in our age is the secularised form in which this development is taking place. But of course, the Christian, as he engages in political action, may never look to the state in this way. Regardless of whether he belongs to a particular party, he is under an absolute obligation to honour Christ first in all things, and therefore he may not idolise the state in the way that the non-believer does, nor engage in the politics of idolatry, by compromising himself with the politics of man. 
In his politics, the Christian politician must manifest the antithesis that exists between the politics of God and the politics of man, and his mission must always be to bring the political life of the nation into conformity with the politics of God as revealed in Scripture. Just as the Christians in ancient Rome had to renounce the official worship of the state and the cult of the emperor, so too Christians today must renounce the political idolatries of the secular humanist establishment. The Christian politician, therefore, must acknowledge the ultimate political authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own duty as a servant of Christ in the political sphere. And he must acknowledge that only in Christ and the practice of the politics of God can man find peace. This means that he may not adopt the idolatrous political idea of the state that governs the politics of man. The answer to society's problems is not intervention by the state. It is always obedience to God, which will sometimes mean that the state must take action, and probably more often it will mean that the state should do nothing. For the Christian, the goal of specific political action must always be to bring the politics of man into conformity with the politics of God. Politics in this sense is, of course, a legitimate vocation governed by God's law. Therefore, there are some social problems that are rightly solved by being referred to the civil government, the state. But the civil government must function within its own proper boundaries as established by God's law if it is to practice the politics of God. This needs to be borne in mind because the politics of man dominates our society. Christians can and do fall victim to the temptation to legitimate government action even when this action falls outside the God-ordained boundaries of state competence. This error is the source of Christian socialism, which is a syncretistic religion, an accommodation to the politics of man by Christians that must be resisted and denounced by all who practice the politics of God. What is the consequence of all this for national politics? How does being a Christian make a difference? What does it mean to practice the politics of God? Before answering this question, we must deal with what it does not mean. It does not mean that our duty as Christians who must engage in the politics of God is a matter of government lobbying. Christianity is not a political faith in the sense that it sees the answer to man's problems as action by the state. To understand the Christian faith as being political in this sense would be to adopt the secular humanist agenda for politics. It is the politics of man that insists that the answer to the problems besetting society is government action, that is to say, control and regulation of society by the state. The Christian faith teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is man's saviour, and he has given only a limited role to the state as a ministry of public justice. In our political action, we must acknowledge this by denying the idolatry of the state that constitutes the politics of man. Government intervention as an answer for the ills that blight our society has no place in the politics of God. Why? Because God has ordained other institutions to govern society as well as the state, namely the church, which has pastoral, cultic and secondary welfare responsibilities, and the family, which has primary welfare, economic and educational responsibilities. Ultimate and absolute power is in the hands of Christ alone. 
He delegates his sovereignty in a limited and specific form to each of these institutions. No one sphere or institution has total authority. The role of the state is the administration of public justice. See Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 6. It may not encroach on the legitimate sphere of authority of the other institutions without overturning God's revealed political order for society. That is to say, without engaging in a paric basis, an overstretching of itself that results in a corruption of its true calling under God. The answer to man's social problems, therefore, can never be totalitarianism. That is to say, government of all spheres of life by the state. Obedience to Christ in the political realm means that we must observe the boundaries, functions and authority of each of the institutions that God has ordained for the government of human society. Whilst the politics of man is essentially monist in this sense, that is to say, it absolutizes the state, the politics of God, that is to say, the Christian social order, is essentially pluralistic in the sense that there is in society a plurality of institutions that govern different spheres of life, all of which hold their authority in a delegated form from Christ, their head. No one of these institutions takes precedence over the others. Each has a legitimate, delegated, but limited sovereignty that the others may not usurp. It is not being suggested here, therefore, that all Christians need to do to practice the politics of God is to establish Christian political parties or organise Christian lobbying groups. This point cannot be emphasised too strongly. The politics of God requires us to reject the politics of man, which sees state intervention as the answer to society's problems. Such an attitude leads to the absolutizing of the state, which is a form of idolatry. On the contrary, the politics of God, the true politics, requires us to adhere to the social order revealed in Scripture, a social order in which church and family have roles that are equally as important as that of the state and which may not be usurped by the state. Only as society adheres to this social order will individuals be free to pursue their vocations in life under God. This denunciation of the state as man's saviour was also an aspect of the confession of the early church. According to Charles Norris Cochrane, the early Christians consistently and rigorously denounced the Greco-Roman idea that it is possible to attain a condition of permanent security, peace and freedom by means of state action. To the Christians, he says, and I quote, the state, so far from being the supreme instrument of human emancipation and perfectibility, was a straitjacket to be justified at best as a remedy for sin, to think of it otherwise, they considered the grossest of superstitions. Unquote. The idea that society's problems can be solved by means of state intervention is a denial of the true politics, the politics of God, in which Jesus Christ, as Lord over all, governs all aspects of human life by delegating specific functions of his supreme government to a plurality of social institutions that are not reducible to each other, in other words, sphere sovereignty. So much for what it does not mean to practice the politics of God. What then does it mean to practice the politics of God? 
I shall try to answer this question first in a general sense and then in a specific sense, corresponding to the two senses in which I am using the term political. First, what does it mean for the Christian to practice the politics of God? That is to say, to live out the political implications of the Christian faith in a general sense as a member of Christ's church. And I am speaking here of the church as an organism, a society, that is to say, a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth, not merely of the church as an institution. To practice the politics of God in a general sense means that as individuals and as a community of faith, we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our sovereign Lord, our King, and his law as absolute and final. There is no court of appeal beyond God's word, God's law, to which men can turn, however such a court of appeal might be conceived, for example, as natural law, the law of reason, the common good, or any other notion in which sinful men may think they can take refuge from the will of God as this has been revealed in his law. The church has often resorted to such sophistry in an attempt to mitigate what sinful men have sought to construe as the harsh and unrealistic law of God for themselves and their societies. But the real world is the world that God created, the world that fell into sin and that the Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem. All views of reality that deny the biblical doctrines of creation, fall and redemption are the fantasies of sinners and those who rely on such fantasies will be shipwrecked on the shores of the reality that is God's creation, which manifests not only his divine glory and wisdom, but the moral order of his law as well. As Christians, we are to live in the constant awareness of this fact. As we do this, and as we seek to conform our lives, families and societies to God's will, the kingdom of God is realised in our midst and exercises a transforming influence on the world. As we pray and live out the plea to God that his kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdoms of this world begin to be transformed by the gospel. In this sense, Christianity as a political religion is all-embracing, all-encompassing. That is to say, it embraces all of life. We serve a king who claims the whole of our lives. The absolute nature of Christ's kingship means that all aspects and spheres of life are to be subject to his sovereign will, that in the whole of our lives and every facet of our being, as individuals, families, churches, as a community, a society, a nation, we are to glorify God by living in obedience to his will. He claims our marriage, our families, our children, our work life, which is to be pursued for his glory no matter who our employer is, our economic life, our art, our music, our civil governments, indeed the whole cultural life of the nation, and he demands that in all these things we should put his kingdom first, which is a political order, an absolute sovereignty that recognises no area of religious or political neutrality and requires all other religions and political communities to surrender unconditionally to his rule. The ancient Roman state, for all its evil, recognised this fact, which so many Christians today deny, and that is why it persecuted the early Christians. 
The church was primarily a political threat to the political religion of Rome. All of life is political in this sense, that is to say, not in the sense that Westminster or Brussels should control our lives. That is the politics of man, the religion of modern secular humanism. But in the sense that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and demands that Westminster and Brussels bow the knee to him and acknowledge his political sovereignty over them. Christ did not merely demand that the Christians in Rome cease from worshipping Caesar. He demanded that Caesar should worship him. Nor does he today merely demand of us that we should cease from worshipping the political idols of Westminster and Brussels. He demands that Westminster and Brussels should worship him also. We have not preached the gospel properly until we have made this fact clear to Westminster and Brussels. Politicians have no special dispensation. Either Caesar or Westminster or Brussels is Lord or Jesus Christ is Lord. And there can be no peace between Christ and Westminster until Westminster bows the knee to Christ. If it refuses, Christ will break it with his rod of iron. And it would seem that this is precisely what is happening. Westminster is a spent force. It has been weighed and found wanting, and Brussels is taking over just as the Persians conquered Babylon. And Brussels will go the same way unless it bows the knee to Christ. We have only one political lord, Jesus Christ. All others are pretenders, usurpers. To be political is to be religious, that is to say, to acknowledge a God as the ultimate source of authority over the nation. For Rome, that God was Caesar. For Christians, it is Christ, and he commands his people to engage in the ultimate political war, the conquest of the whole earth and its subjugation to his sovereign will. But the means that we are to use in this process are not the means that the world uses in its political conquests. The world seeks to conquer new territory by means of physical and military coercion. The kingdom of God grows by means of the preaching of the gospel. Nonetheless, the object of this war is the conquest of all nations, as Christ made clear in the Great Commission. In each sphere of life, then, the implications of Christ's political sovereignty must be worked out. One of those areas of life is civil government, what I have called politics in the specific sense. Therefore, we must now ask a second question. What does it mean to practice the politics of God specifically? How can Christians work out the political implications of Christ's lordship in a society that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, indeed that emphatically denies his lordship over the civil government, the state? How do Christians practice the politics of God in a society ruled by the politics of man? First, we must seek to understand what scripture has to say about this important sphere of life, and it has much to say. We must seek to understand what biblical principles are relevant and how these principles apply to human action in the political sphere. In other words, we must develop a comprehensive political theology. If the church is to speak prophetically to the modern world, 
and call it to repentance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, she must understand what is going on at the heart of modern man's insane rebellion against God. Only then will she be able to address the apostasy that has overtaken the Western world and with God's help overthrow modern man's chief idol, the godless secular state, which has exalted itself above God and now usurps his authority in virtually every sphere of life. We can be of little use in bringing the influence of the Christian gospel to bear upon the political life of the nation if we do not understand in the first place how the gospel applies to the political sphere. The Holy Spirit does not use ignorance as a means of enabling Christians to bear effective witness to the gospel. It is the duty of Christians to understand scripture so that they can give a credible defence of the faith to those who ask, thereby challenging the disobedience and apostasy of the nation. We may not be able to achieve in a few decades or even in our own lifetime the transformation of society by means of the gospel, but we are able to make a start that future generations can build upon. This is impossible, however, if we have never come to a proper understanding of the Christian principles that apply to our lives and society. The Church, therefore, must address the political questions that dominate our society and develop a biblical understanding, a biblical worldview on these issues and a political theology consistent with that worldview. The Holy Spirit works through the renewing of the mind, not through ignorance. See Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Second, we must start living as the kingdom of God. The church should be a prophetic society, an alternative Christian social order that functions across the whole spectrum of human life and through the witness of this life in words and action calls the world to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only as the church incarnates the gospel in her life as a prophetic social order will the Great Commission be fulfilled. This means that we must start applying biblical principles to our own individual lives and to the church as a living community of faith and begin living as a true society in terms of a Christian worldview in those areas of life in which we do have the freedom and authority to apply biblical norms and standards. And there is a great deal of opportunity for this. Biblical principles of justice may at present be difficult to apply in the secular courts, but they can be applied in our personal relationships, in our family lives, in our church organisations and in our communities. They can also be applied where churches and Christians are prepared to accept Christian arbitration services that use biblical principles of justice for resolving disputes. This was a practice of the early church that has the specific sanction of scripture. The Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for going before the pagan courts and for failing to establish competent law courts for settling disputes between believers. See 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. It is necessary for the church to re-establish such courts today since the secular courts of the land are now subject to ungodly legislation and justice cannot be expected from them. The functioning of such church courts would also be likely to have an influence beyond the church as indeed was the case 
with the courts of the early church. According to Augustus Neander, and I quote, the state allowed to the church a particular jurisdiction when it recognised, in a legal form, what had already obtained in the church before. It was the rule from the first in the Christian communities that disputes between their members should not be brought before heathen tribunals, but settled within their own body. This was befitting the mutual brotherly relation subsisting between Christians, and it had been the course adopted already in the Jewish synagogues. Paul had, in fact, expressly required this method of procedure. When the Episcopal form of church government became matured, it was made part of the function of the Episcopal office to decide these disputes. Yet, hitherto, the sentence of the bishop stood valid only so far as both parties had voluntarily agreed to submit to it. Constantine made the sentence of the bishops legally binding whenever the two parties once agreed to repair to their tribunal, so that no further appeal could be made from it. Unquote. Likewise, Joseph Bingham states that, and again I quote, besides these, that is to say, the officers of bishops that were established by divine and canon law, there was one office more imposed upon them by custom and the laws of the state, which was the hearing and determining of secular cases upon the continual application and addresses that the people made to them. For such was the singular character and repute of bishops, and such the entire confidence men generally reposed in them for their integrity and justice, that they were commonly appealed to as the best arbitrators of men's differences, and the most impartial judges of the common disputes that happened among them. And it is to be observed that though there be no express text in the New Testament that commands bishops to be judges in secular cases, Yet St. Augustine was of opinion that St. Paul, in prohibiting men to go to law before unbelievers, did virtually lay this obligation upon them, for he says once again that it was the apostle that instituted ecclesiastical judges and laid the burden of secular causes upon them, by which he means that the apostle gave a general direction to Christians to choose arbitrators among themselves, and that custom determined this office particularly to the bishops as the best qualified by their wisdom and probity to discharge it. Unquote. As a consequence of this, says Christopher Dawson, and I quote, the functions of the city magistrate as a representative and protector of the people passed to the magistrate of the new society, the Christian bishop. While the former had become a mere puppet in the hands of the bureaucracy, the latter was the one independent power in the society of the later empire. Unquote. While there are today neither biblical, logical nor practical reasons why this work should be the domain of the clergy, indeed, there are good reasons why it should not be the domain of the clergy, for example, maintenance of sphere sovereignty, the establishment of such courts is a necessary and important part of the Church's work in the modern world. Believers with vocations in the legal and political spheres of life should take this task seriously, since it will provide a valuable service to the Church and a potent witness to the world. 
It would also enable the church to start working out the practical details of how biblical principles of justice should apply in the modern world. This in itself is an important aspect of practising the politics of God. Christian political principles must also be taught to future generations, which will, if we act now by providing our children with a Christian education, be in a position in the future to apply these principles more effectively to a wider sphere of life than we can. Provision of an education in terms of the Christian worldview is a fundamental responsibility of the family and essential in our great commission to disciple the nations. Education is the high ground in our battle with secular humanism. It is through the education system that secular humanists have been able to take control of what was once a Christian society. We must now wake up to this fact and act appropriately. We must establish a counter-revolution in education that does not rely on the secular state education system. It will also be necessary to create an alternative Christian welfare system that can operate according to biblical work ethics. Strengthening the family so that it can fulfil its biblical role in society is an important part of this, but not the whole of it. An alternative medical system will have to be created eventually. The modern healthcare system in Britain is not Christian. It is part of the apostate politics of man. The church is commanded not only to preach the gospel, but to heal the sick as well. The purpose of these endeavours is not merely to provide for the church's own members, but also to provide these services as an essential aspect of the church's mission to the world, so that as the Christian social order grows it will displace and eventually replace the secular humanist social order that now dominates Western society. As the secular social order collapses, as it inevitably will and is doing already, the nation must be able to see the Christian faith as the only real answer to man's personal crisis and the Christian social order as the only answer to man's social crisis. Just as the Roman emperors eventually realised that Christianity was the only real alternative to the collapse of Rome, so too our rulers and people must come to realise that only in Christ can man find salvation and that the Christian social order is the only answer to the disintegration of our society. By pursuing all these things we shall create an alternative religious and political society, a Christian counter-revolutionary social order, which with God's help will gradually grow and supplant the godless culture of secular humanism that now dominates our lives and society. Third, we must, wherever possible, seek to influence the political process by means of the consistent application of Christian political norms. It would seem that there is little scope for this at the present time. Nevertheless, we must not shrink back from the attempt to influence the political process. Constitutionally, if not in practice, Britain is still a Christian nation and Christian principles can be invoked. However, we must be careful here. What we must not do under any circumstances is to fall into the error of thinking that state intervention on its own will create a Christian society. It will not. As we have seen, the attempt to solve all of man's social problems by means of government intervention is the definitive feature of the politics of man in the age of apostate secular humanism. The politics of God is based on completely different principles. 
In the politics of man, society looks to the state as a political idol, as the source of the good. In the politics of God, society is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of the good. And the answer to man's social problems is to be sought in obedience to the social order that he has revealed in his word. This means that the state must observe its God-ordained boundaries and that the other institutions that God has established for the government and well-being of the individual and society, that is to say church and family, must fulfil their God-given roles in accordance with his word. This is the only way to achieve social harmony, justice and peace. It will not be possible for Christians to exert the kind of influence necessary to take captive the political institutions of the nation, that is to say the state, for Christ without first creating a counter-revolutionary Christian social order with its own education, welfare, healthcare and justice, that's to say arbitration systems, that has already begun to supplant significantly the godless culture of secular humanism that now dominates society. A Christian agenda for political action must, therefore, recognise the importance of the other institutions that God has established for the godly government of society, that's to say, church and family, and it must aim at empowering these institutions so that they can function according to their God-given roles. The good ordering of society, the Christian ordering of society, requires this. When these institutions once again begin to function properly according to their divinely appointed roles, much of the current burden of the state can be transferred to them, thereby enabling the state to pursue its God-given role as a ministry of public justice more obediently. None of this is possible, however, unless Christians are prepared and willing to make the sacrifices necessary to establish local communities that enshrine and embody these ideals and practices in their daily life. In other words, unless they are prepared to establish communities of faith that function as real societies with their own distinctive social order. Only in this way can the body of Christ express its existence in history as a concrete reality capable of transforming the world. In the next lecture, I shall consider the Christian view of social order and the state. I want to conclude this lecture, however, with a summary of the main points of this and the previous two lectures. Christianity is a political faith, both in a general sense, in that it recognises that Jesus Christ is Lord and teaches that all power and authority in heaven and on earth, and therefore all government of men and nations, is given to him alone, and in a specific sense, in that it teaches that the civil government or state is commanded to recognise the rights of God and order its work according to the light of his word as his servant. Apostate politics, the politics of man, is a form of idolatry. As Christians, we must face this idolatry head-on and oppose on every level and in every detail the politics of man with the politics of God. We cannot avoid the inevitable conflict that exists between the politics of God and the politics of man without abandoning our great commission to disciple the nations. Christians must stop running away from Goliath and take the political nature of the Christian faith seriously, as did the early church.
If the church does not pose a political threat to the secular humanist state, it is because she has already bowed the knee to Caesar. Unfortunately, this is the situation today in Britain. The modern secular state is the chief idol of our age. If we fail to challenge this idolatry, we fail in our great commission to bring the nations under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to challenge the politics of man, the politics of apostasy and sin, is with the politics of God. In order to do this, we need first to develop a comprehensive political theology that recognises the rights of God as sovereign Lord over the whole spectrum of human existence. Second, we must create and maintain a counter-revolutionary Christian social order based on this political theology. While we are not able to control Westminster and Brussels, we are able, if we are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices, to begin creating an alternative Christian social order with its own education system, its own welfare system, its own healthcare system and its own justice system. In other words, a state within a state. The influence of such a Christian social order would extend far wider than the Christian church. Being dependent upon the godless secular state for these things is not an obedient alternative and is a servile condition that the Bible rebukes. See, for example, Exodus chapter 23, verse 32, chapter 34, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 15. Third, we must seek to conquer the political institutions of the nation for Christ by the influence we exert upon society. Only where the first two of these goals have been achieved significantly shall we be able to accomplish the third. None of this is possible, however, without the manifestation of the body of Christ on earth as a true society functioning across the full spectrum of human life. That is to say, without the church functioning as a true social order, thereby manifesting the kingdom of God on earth. Nothing of what has been put forward here is unrealistic or fanciful. It is what actually happened in the first three centuries of the Christian era. The Church of the Imperial Age was, says Christopher Dawson, and I quote, to a great extent an alternative and a substitute for the communal life of the city-state, unquote. Ethelbert Stauffer tells us that the early church was the training ground of a new conception of the state, for which she should have received praise from the state, but instead was constantly accused of being the enemy of the state. But, he says, and I quote, among all the other senseless political accusations levelled against the Christians, there was one charge which the first Christians took upon themselves and which they had to take because it accorded with the facts. The first Christians rejected any attempt to deify the state. Unquote. Christianity, wrote C.N. Cochrane, and again I quote, subverted the central idea of creative politics as this had been pursued throughout classical antiquity. Unquote. That is to say, the idea of the polis, the state, as man's saviour, indeed as man's god, in other words, what defines him and gives meaning to his life. In his book, Caesars and Saints, the evolution of the Christian state, 
180 to 313 AD, Stuart Perown said that Christianity possessed three supreme advantages over its religious competitors in the ancient world. Christianity's first advantage, according to Perown, was its Jewish origin. Christians were, and I quote, the heirs of by far the most sublime religious philosophy that had yet appeared. And not only philosophy, the Ten Commandments were unique. There is nothing like them in any of the competing religions. Far from it, the religions of Asia Minor and of Egypt, like certain of their Syrian competitors, not only countenanced but encouraged sexual excesses. Judaism was wholly different. Its moral code was strict, implacable and permanent. Christianity took it over in its entirety. That was its first advantage. The second advantage was that whereas no one had ever seen Isis or Atagatis or Mithras or the rest, thousands had seen and known Jesus of Nazareth. He had lived in one of the most crowded regions of the whole empire. He was always on the move. He was famous. Men and women remembered his words, recited his deeds. It was possible for his first disciples to appeal to the memory of their auditors. And they did. Unquote. But it is the third advantage mentioned by Perown that particularly concerns us here. This third advantage that Christianity possessed over its competitors, said Perown, and again I quote, is one which has never been explained, its organisation. From the very beginning, from the days of Peter and Paul, it had been governed by an efficient and adaptable system. Its first martyr, Stephen, was a member of the administrative branch. No other faith had anything remotely resembling this organisation. Nothing approaching the administrative unity of the Catholic Church had ever existed before, except in the Roman state. That was the problem. It was not a religious one at all, it was political. These Christians, this organised international society, was it to be the rival or the ally of the state? Unquote. The Christian faith created a new society, an alternative social order that supplanted the society of late classical antiquity as the latter collapsed. The vital centre of the society of the future, says Christopher Dawson, and I quote, was to be found not in the city-state, but in the Christian ecclesia, unquote. Describing the persecution of Christians under the emperor Valerian in the 3rd century, Perown goes on to say, and again I quote, Once again it was the Christian society, not the Christian faith, which was proscribed as illicit. The persecution was, as usual, based on political and economic, not religious or theological grounds, unquote. Likewise, speaking of the transition from the late classical to the early medieval world, Dawson said that, and I quote, Christianity was not abandoned passively to the influences of its social environment. It had its own principle of order, its own social organs, and its own civic traditions. Christianity was not merely a doctrine and a life. It was, above all, 
a society. And it was the organic unity and continuity of the Christian society which preserved the spiritual identity of the Christian religion. Unquote. The cultural mission of the church created the spiritual and social foundations upon which Western civilization was built. During the long apprenticeship of the nations, says Joseph Leclerc, and I quote, which followed the collapse of the Roman Empire, whilst the intellect of the lay community slumbered, the church assumed almost unaided the intellectual and moral leadership of civilization. Unquote. This is how the church exerted her influence upon and began converting the nations. It is our calling to continue that mission in our own lifetime and to prepare our children to continue the same mission in their lifetimes. Just as the decisive issue that faced the early church was the battle between Christ and Caesar, with the emperor as the embodiment and representative of the ideal of the state espoused by classical antiquity, that is to say, the biblical antichrist, so too, the decisive issue facing the modern church in the West is the battle between Christ and the apostate secular state, the modern Antichrist. Until the church recognises this conflict and begins to act in terms of it, she will continue to decline and the state will continue to exercise dominion over her. If she is to conquer her enemies and fulfil her great commission once more, she must proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is to say, ruler, not the secular state. Victory will not come instantly, and it will not come at all without a great deal of sacrifice and tribulation. But this is the mission to which we are called. We must pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is ripe for a change of politics in Western society. The question is simply this. Is the church, the body of Christ on earth, prepared to make the sacrifices necessary to challenge the politics of man and replace it with the politics of God? God does not grant religious neutrality to the state. The state must kiss the sun or perish by the way. Christianity is the true politics. The church must start living out this truth with every breath that she takes. And this means that Christians must once again constitute themselves an imperium in imperio, a state within a state, a kingdom that will transform the world by bringing all things into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only when she does this will the world be delivered from the tyranny and idolatry of the politics of man. End of Lecture 5 these lectures are produced by the Kuiper Foundation, a charitable trust in England, registration number 327537, supported financially by means of voluntary donations from those who believe in the cause for which it works. The Kuiper Foundation is not a business, and it makes all its literature, films and lectures available free of charge on its website as PDF files, audio files and QuickTime movies. Nonetheless, in order to produce the literature and audio files we make available, and in order to progress the work of the Foundation further, we need financial support from those who believe in the cause for which we are working. If you have found these lectures to be useful and believe in the cause that the Kuiper Foundation exists to promote, 
please consider supporting the Foundation financially. You can make donations on our website at the following address www.kuiper.org forward slash donations. More information about the work of the Kuiper Foundation can be found on our website at www.kuiper.org under the About Us page. The next lecture will be A Christian View of Social Order and the State, Part 1, Absolute Power and Authority. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.